0: Good evening everyone and welcome to
1: our live broadcast. So many buttons to push, I can never remember to push them all. Tonight we're looking at Anguttara Nikaya, Book of Fours, Sutta 37. Another one of my teacher's favorites. It's nice to go through these and find the ones that he used to teach, or perhaps still even teaches, though not as frequently. The Aprihaniya Dhamma. Aparihania dhamma. These are Dhammas that... Actually, I'm not sure if this was one of them he used to teach. Anyway. yeah no I think this is actually the four aparihaniya dhammas parihanya uh, parihana pariha, parihana means to decline Pari, parihana parihana means decrease so these are dhammas that do not cause one to decline or prevent one from declining this is of course an important aspect of spiritual practice that we continue to grow that we continue to progress that we don't stagnate and that we Don't lose the path That we don't fade away That we don't fall away from the path It's very easy to become discouraged And to lose our way Through doubt or Distraction Through attachment to worldly pleasures and so on There's many things that cause us to Lose our way And hence decline So these are four Dhammas that Prevent that That keep us on the path Useful Dhammas to know And again another set that it's good for us to know If you're not writing these sets down at home Well you better start Because These are good things All good things to know I guess you've got them on YouTube if you ever want to go back over them. So what are the four? Oh, and not only that, the Buddha said, Nibbana Santike. Nibbana Santike. Nibbana Seva Santike. And not only that, one is verily in the presence of Nibbana, or in the neighborhood, or close, close to freedom. Uh, in the if one actually accomplishes these, not only does one not fade away, but one is on the doorstep of true freedom from suffering. So what are these four?. Number one, see the One is accomplished in ethics, or ethical behavior, morality accomplished in their abstention from unwholesome activities Number two, Indriye Suguta They are They are people who, they are ones who guard the doors of the senses whose doors uh, the doors of the senses are guarded Number three bojane matanyuhoti They are those who know moderation in regards to food And number four jagariyang anuyutohoti They are those who are devoted to Wakefulness, vigilance, alertness. These four are the four aparihani and You accomplish these, it's another way of saying, another way of looking at the path. And another set that describes the factors that protect you. So what does it mean to be virtuous? Well, It means to, basically to Generally means to keep rules To refrain from those actions and speech that are immoral In a worldly sense, on the most coarse level It means not killing, stealing, cheating, lying Taking drugs and alcohol, that kind of thing On a more refined level, it means any, not doing anything with greed or anger or delusion. And so for a meditator, this even means not, um, n- not walking angrily, not speaking angrily or greedily, not letting our, our actions or our speech become unguarded. that everything we do is mindful, doing everything unconfused. When you eat, to eat with a clear mind. When you speak, to speak with a mindful mind. When you lie down to sleep, to lie down to sleep with a mindful mind. A mind that is clear and alert and remembers itself. A mind that is in the present moment. Uh, How does one guard the sense faculties? What does it mean to guard the doors of the senses? Again, we've been over this one many times, but it means we let seeing be seeing. It doesn't have anything to do with preventing yourself from seeing certain things, because the things that you see are not the problem. Whether you see something beautiful or you see something ugly, it's the mind that causes the attachment or aversion and so you don't get caught up in the particulars seeing is just seeing, hearing is just hearing sensing is all just sensing, all the senses even thinking is just thinking because without that that's how the mind gets into trouble if we leave the mind unguarded the Buddha says bad unwholesome states of longing and dejection might very well invade the mind and take it over. And so we guard, we guard not against seeing or hearing or smelling, we guard against the particulars, against judging. In, a, in a essence we're guarding against our own minds. We're not guarding the doors to stop the senses from coming in, We're stopping We're guarding the doors to stop our own minds from getting out. That's a big difference. Because normally we want to stop things from getting in. We want to stop seeing or hearing. We think the answer is to just avoid certain experiences. That's not what the Buddha meant by guarding the doors. It's more like a prison. Guard your mind. Keep it in check. Keep the animal tame. Keep the beast from getting out. From getting loose. Let seeing just be seeing. Teach yourself. Teach yourself how to see things just as they are. Number three, moderation in eating. Again, here we see how important food is in the Buddha's estimation. That uh, The practice of eating is a very big part of our life. It's the one thing that we require to live and it's our it's our illness hunger is our illness and it's our uh, strongest attachment it's the one thing we require and so it easily becomes a, a object of abuse we abuse food we abuse our bodies with food eat too much we don't eat enough we eat poorly unhealthily, we don't eat for the right purpose, we eat for amusement, intoxication, physical strength or beauty, when in fact food is something very simple, it's a medicine that keeps us alive, if we don't eat it we die, or at least get, get very sick that's all it's for. And when you start to think like that, you realize how little food and uh, how simple food you need. You simply need food to keep you alive. If you don't, you'll die. Okay. So I'll eat a little bit of food and that keeps me alive. And now I can get on with my work. This is from the Buddha. This is one of the important practices. I mean, you could extra- extrapolate this to all sorts of things. There's so many more things that we cling to, but food is really near the top, if not the top, of those things that we cling to. Or it's those thi- one of those things that is so much a part of our lives that we, must, we can't remove it from our lives. You can remove all the other things you're attached to when you go to do a meditation course, but food is one of the few things that you can't escape. So of all the things that we can't escape, it's probably the most significant in terms of cultivating attachment and aversion. And so once we get into the practice, we have to look at food as a very dangerous proposition. Eating. uh, Eating is like a a, a confrontation with the armies of Mara when you go into the kitchen to make your food, you have to think like you're going to battle, you're going to war, you're going to war against your defilements. So you have to prepare yourself, you have to arm yourself, and you have to defend yourself. The food war, food. Mm. The battle for food. Let food just be food. Let it not be mental food. Let it not feed your ego or feed your desires or feed your partialities and aversions. Let it just feed your body and nothing more. Or let it feed your practice in the sense of being simply for the purpose of allowing you to continue doing the right thing. That's number three. Number four is being alert, being devoted to wakefulness, being awake. And so the Buddha talks about, here's one of the examples of where the Buddha talks about a regimen for meditation. For those of you who are here doing a course and and want to have some confirmation that what you're doing is very much in line with what the Buddha taught. The Buddha said, during the day you walk back and forth and sitting purifying your minds of destructive of obstructive qualities. That's what the Buddha said. So what are you supposed to be doing walking back and forth and sitting this is what you're doing. And how do you describe the practice of what you do is? you purify your mind of obstructing qualities all the things that are causing you stress and conflict and friction and trouble all of those you cleanse from your mind and then as far as the night goes you split the night up into three parts and in the first part you do the same you walk back and forth and sit there's no variation here in the second watch of the night you lie down so that's about four hours. Well we allow six hours here maximum, but if you can get down to four that's great. Eventually we'd like you to get down to four, but all in good time. And when you do lie down, you lie down in a mindful posture. And rather than thinking about going to sleep, you actually think about awaking, awakening. So you Keep in mind the time when you're going to wake up, and that's all you think about. As though making a, uh, a concession, as though lying down is simply a, an admittance of, your, of the need to sleep, and that's all. There's no desire, no attachment. Your desire is to get up as soon as possible and go and practice. So you make a note, okay in four hours at this time I'm going to wake up or six hours, whatever you're sleeping for and then you get up and you don't try to go to sleep you lie down and you try to meditate and be as mindful as you can eventually when you do fall asleep you'll find that you're actually quite mindful at that moment and you wake up alert, refreshed and ready to continue on your path striving for freedom and then in the first in the last watch of the night again you walk back and forth and sit so it means staying awake being devoted to wakefulness because sleep is I suppose the other one food and sleep these are the two big ones that you have to contend with as a meditator Food is a bit of an escape, sleep certainly is an escape from all the trouble that comes from meditation practice, all the difficulty, all the challenge. Sleep is not very challenging, especially when you've been meditating all day, all you want to do is lie down to sleep. But over time, through the days, you start to see that, oh, sleep doesn't really help, it doesn't really make me feel better, I don't feel more at peace with myself because of my sleep, it's actually very much an addiction. And that's all. It's not really a cause for satisfaction. And so eventually the meditator begins to be inclined to devote themselves to wakefulness. They don't wish to sleep. They wish to be awake because they see all the fruit and the benefit that comes from being awake. The good that comes from it. So these are the four aprihaniya These four. Render a bhikkhu incapable of decline. Ababbo, ab, ababbo parihanaya. Incapable of decline. Nibbana seva santike. And in the neighborhood of Nibbana. Then we have this wonderful verse that I'll just read out. Sile patitito bhikkhu Indriesu chasanguto so this is repeating them. One who is abhiku, who is established in morality or ethics and has the faculties well-guarded or restrained. And who knows moderation in regards to food and is... Uh, Dedicated to wakefulness Thus one dwell, dwells uh, with effort Exerting themselves Both by day and night uh, Active uh, Wakeful or, or energetic Both by day and by night Bhavayangusalangamang uh, Yogakimasapatia. These are no what does that mean? Okay, developing wholesome qualities to attain security of bondage, Bhikkhu Bodhi said. Right, to attain patya, to attain freedom from bondage. Freedom from slavery. A pamadaratobiku Abhiku delights in heedfulness, in not intoxicat not being intoxicated in being heedful and vigilant. Bamade Bayadasiwa oh, it shouldn't be wa. What is it? Bayadasavi yeah. Bayadasavi Pamade Bayadasavi one who sees fear fearsomeness sees the danger in negligence, the danger in letting your mind wander, letting your mind get caught up in base thoughts, coarse thoughts, distracted thoughts, get caught up in the world. Abhabbo parihanaya, such a one is incapable of decline, Nibbana Seva and in the neighborhood of Nibbana. More dhamma to think on, to reflect upon, and to use as a mirror for ourselves. The great things about these dhamma. The great thing about these dhamma. The greatest thing about these dhamma is they provide a mirror. When we hear the dhamma, we think about ourselves and we compare them to ourselves. Do I have these? And it reminds us where we're, where we still need to work. It reminds us to continue working, and, and it gives us direction on how we should continue working. So, that's the Dhamma for this evening. Now we move on to question
0: I've been meditating for 7 months now because I'm not breathing properly using my stomach. I focus on my stomach rising and falling, letting it be as it is, without controlling the in and out breaths, noting the tension for what it is. After my 30 minutes I feel great, my stomach is relaxed, there's no tension, no forcing of breath, but as the day continues I feel the tension come back and I start hurting again. It's really confusing me. Do I always have to be mindful for this habit of forcing to disappear? How do I break this habit of forcing my breath at every time of the day, every moment?
1: Well, it's not exactly forcing. That's what it feels like, and everyone talks, complains about this. It's the stress that your mind's inability to, and it's a lot of things. There's so much in there that's all compacted into this feeling of control, but it's, it's really just a feeling of stress and tension. You can't, as it turns out, we can't watch something without obsessing over it, without having to um, uh, m- having to force or or uh, con- not control, but to regulate it and to make it stable. So the unpredictability of it, or the unpredictability, of the unpredictability of the mind. Causes us stress and tension as we're sorely unequipped to deal with the true nature of, of, of reality. And so it causes us tension and stress. Now, absolutely, you're not, you know, this, this isn't something to be avoided. This isn't something to be mm, fixed per se, except that uh, it, it is the problem. And the answer, the solution, is simply to see that it's a problem, and to sh- teach yourself, to just to, to see more clearly what is exa- what exactly is it that you're doing, to watch your behavior, and to slowly unlearn your behavior as a result. I mean, you unlearn it because you start to see that it's causing you suffering. That's what you're starting to see. But this is very much a part of who you are. It's 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 all based on. Your habits of behavior in your life. You know. So, when given a simple exercise like watching your breath, you get to see all about what you do wrong when you when you're given such an exercise or such a an object of focus. The breath is a great is there for a the stomach is there for a great teacher to us because it allows us to see what we do to ourselves when. Uh, you know, when, whenever we apply our mind to something, if you can apply your mind and the breath is just going naturally as it is, without any stress or suffering, then you can see that your mind is is well able. Your mind is in a good state because when you put your mind to something, it applies it peacefully. But that's not what we see most of the time, and that's clearly the the, the issue here. So all we're trying to do is. See our faults, is to see the yeah, see what we're doing wrong, see the fault in our behavior. So eventually, it's gonna you're gonna see deeper than that. If if you're just seeing that it's you trying to force it, then you're not yet seeing the whole picture. You've got to look carefully and see what is actually happening, because you're not just trying to force. In fact, that's really uh, vague. What's really happening is perhaps you want it. There's wanting. There's a desire. And there's an aversion to the way it is happening. There's worry, there's fear, there's doubt. There's all sorts of hindrances, all mixed up. And uh, causing you lots of stress. And so absolutely, this is what we want to see. This is the way the mind works, this is the way the mind learns. is it sees what it's doing wrong, and it begins to change. All we're trying to do is give it the opportunity to see. But you don't break habits, you just unlearn them. If you could break habits, it would be more control and force. And the fact that you're asking that is a good indication, and something I can point out to you, that you're the kind of person, as most of us are, who wants to try and fix things, control things, be in charge. And that's probably what's causing you stress with the stomach, because you're trying to fix and control it. So, until you can give up the need to try and fix your your fixing, you're always going to be trying to fixing everything, and in, in, until you stop trying to control. You're controlling. You're never going to be an uncontrol. You're never going to be a person who doesn't control, doesn't try to control things.
0: I remember you once said that the eightfold path is realized in three moments, but I've also heard that Dharma talks regarding the eightfold path in terms of a systematic process. In other words, under right effort, one is to cultivate positive emotions and to remove the five hindrances. It seems to me, it seems to imply to that when a negative emotion arises, one counteracts it with a positive emotion. Or in the sutra regarding thoughts, the Buddha said to replace annoying thoughts with Dharma thoughts. This approach contradicts the mindful noting process as to what's happening in the here and now. Can you please say something on this?
1: The Buddha taught many different things at many different times, on many different levels. So he taught things like metta, if you're angry you should practice metta. It doesn't mean that that's going to enlighten you, it means it's a useful tool. It's one of the things that protects your practice actually. But um, the idea of doing different practices at different times, in different situations is on that level of being fairly rudimentary, basic, and protective rather than, than core The core practice is the practice of the satipatthana And when you practice that, you're cultivating the factors of the Eightfold Path Now, that's one part of the answer Is that you don't really have to go around like Okay, today I'm going to practice effort or today I'm going to practice concentration Or today I'm going to do cultivate right view or that kind of thing doesn't really work that way. The eightfold path really only comes through insight meditation. Um, you know, and parts of it come from samatha, but but they can't be considered to be the eightfold path. Now, as far as um, whether it's instantaneous or whether it's a process, that's th- that the point is there are two paths. There's what's called the pubanga magga, which is the preliminary path, and what that means is. You, you're cultivating the qualities of the Eightfold Noble Path But aren't there yet The Noble Path, the, the arising in three moments Means that you have all of those eight Meaning you've, they're all you're on a path And this is more what the Eightfold Noble Path is about It's describing all the qualities All the important qualities of the path but it's one path, it's not eight different parts, it's eight different paths that you practice. First I'll go up this path, then I'll go up that path. It's one path, that's what you have to remember. So you're not going to practice one and then the other. You practice the path and it, that path has all of those eight factors. So at that moment, there's one moment where you enter into the path. Um, and why it's called the path well, why it's called the Noble Path is because it is perfect. You've you've perfected all four of those, all eight of those. Um, but why it's called the Path at all is because it's the one moment. It is the one state, the only state in 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 samsara, in this in the nature of the mind, and all the many different types types of mind states that might arise. It's the only one that is able to destroy the defilements because the next moment those defilements are gone in fact the next moment has the same qualities, it's not called the path though but the Eightfold Noble Path is that one moment and this may seem very technical but it's important, it's an important technical distinction it's the one moment that destroys the defilement and we know this because the next moment they're gone without that one moment they would never disappear. But that next moment has the same qualities. Why it's not called the path is because those defilements are already destroyed. They were destroyed in the last moment. So that's what the Eightfold Noble Path is. Now, may not seem all that useful for us, and people like useful things, and that's why we think of the Eightfold Noble Path um, in terms of something you, you practice gradually. But with that is not the Eightfold Noble Path. That is... Technically, the Pubhanga Maga, the preliminary path, which is perfectly valid, and that's what we're all practicing. We're practicing the preliminary path. Once you get to that one moment where you see things clearly, you enter into the Eightfold Noble Path, and that one moment is enough to destroy the defilements. So the preliminary path is like weaker versions of all eight. You're just getting there. You You don't have right view yet, you don't have right thought. you're cultivating so I don't know if I've answered everything in your question but perhaps you can uh, perhaps you can elucidate if you need more elucidation Bhante,
0: do those three moments have names?
1: it's not three moments it's one moment it's you. the magajita. In fact, there's four of them because there's four magas, there's four paths, so it's a bit more complicated than that. The eightfold noble path there are actually four of them. There's the sotapanna, the sakadagami, anagami, and arahant. So there are four distinct magajitas. <coughs> Thank
0: you, Bante. Um, I think we actually had this question the other night, what object can we meditate on to stop ourselves from falling into despair of another's terminal illness?
1: We did, didn't we?
0: We did, but, yeah. Uh,
1: you know, it's, I mean, that's one of those questions where I would normally just say, uh, you know, meditation. But I did I did go into a bit of detail, didn't I?
0: You did, and I believe that was last night's show, which is still recorded. Right. The other two, for some reason, are not recorded. My interpretation of the Anapanasati Sutta is that at least some sufficient level of samadhi should be attained, if not full absorption into the jhanas before moving on to insight practice. My interpretation of your methodology is that fixed concentration, samadhi, and absorption should be avoided in order to stay focused on insight. Are these interpretations correct, and if so, why not first learn to establish piti and sukha before moving into insight as the Anapanasati Sutta suggests?
1: You should never, you should never, um, I think this really goes without, uh, it should go without saying that you should never define Buddhism by what one sutta says. So you're saying based on the interpretation of the Anapanasati is that you should do A or you should do X. Well, okay, maybe. First of all, we could say maybe according to the Anapanasati Sutta. But that's not the only thing the Buddha taught. It's not the only way that the Buddha taught. The Anapanasati is just one sutta and it's one way of looking at things. The Anapanasati Sutta s- describes the practice of someone who who cultivates samatha first and then vipassana it's probably the most common way the Buddha taught but it's not the only way he taught and many times he would just teach insight meditation but the point is that eventually you have to come out of jhana no matter what you have to come out of your absorption and look at reality as impermanent unsatisfying and uncontrollable there's no question if you know even a moderate amount of the teachings of the Buddha that one has to see impermanent suffering and non-self you can't see that practicing samatha the samatha jhanas don't allow for it they can't they're absorbed on a concept that concept is fixed and stable and if it weren't it, it wouldn't allow for, for the, that deep concent- absorbed concentration how can you enter into absorption when things are changing all the time when things are you know when your mind is flitting from one thing to another, for example. But on the other hand, how could you see impermanent suffering and non-self when your mind is fixed and focused on a single object? So the Sutta goes into Samatha first and then it starts to apply that concentration to Vipassana. Now, I think you understand that already. But um, it's not the way I teach. You know, the way we teach is another way which is still very much in line with the buddha's teaching because the buddha never really s- said what you well, he never he, he never required the entering into the samatha jhanas and you know that's a complex point to argue but it's it's quite backed up quite well by both the suttas and the commentaries um And we always turn, well, there's a few suttas that we turn to for that, but whatever. Let's not be dogmatic either way. Um, And so the way we teach, or, yeah, the way we teach is to um, cultivate concentration, sure, but with a focus on mindfulness. We follow the Satipatthana Sutta, which also has Sati in there, sure. But uh, is much more focused on things like walking and, you know, and pain and mind states and emotions and senses it's got everything in there it's the focus on reality is the object of your meditation um, so fixed con- I, I, I do not say fixed concentration samadhi and absorption should be avoided but I do say that they have to eventually be left behind it's not that they should be avoided, but it's just a shifting of focus. So rather than trying to absorb the mind, you try to see things clearly. And that's everything arising and ceasing. So that, as to your actual question, um, if you want to establish piti and sukha, by all means, go for it. I have no qualms or no no problem with you doing that. I'll be here if you ever want to come and practice vipassana.
0: If there is no consciousness in Nibbana, how can the mind know that it has happened?
1: By the results. One is aware, it's called. It's the 16th stage of knowledge, it's called uh, patisankhanya, no, what's it called? Pajavekanayana Pajavekanayana means you reflect it's the time of reflection after, after arising from Nibbana returning you could say um, there's a reflection well, I feel different I'm, I'm free from something happened something quite profound happened and I'm free from certain defilements. And so you know five things. You you become aware of the path that you followed, the fruit, the and uh, you become aware of you become. You reflect. You, know, you reflect on five things. You reflect on the path. Oh, what happened there? What happened to cause that? What was it that caused that experience? The fruit. There was an experience, the cessation. Uh, the third is you reflect on nibbana. There was nothing, no, no, no arising whatsoever, um, which, which is you know, like reflecting on some on a non-experience because there was no, no arise arisen experience, but something definitely happened. It, it seems in it seems like nothing, but you certainly are aware that something happened, even though there's no memory of of that. And for you're aware of that you reflect upon. Defilements that have been cut off, and five, you reflect upon the defilements that are remaining. Now, that fifth one, of course, doesn't occur for an arahant, but for all the others, for sotapanna, sakadagami, and anagami, there is that kind of reflection, and that's what that's what you what will happen after you reflect.
0: Hey, how are you? Very curious on what your average day is like. Any interesting experiences?
1: I'm fine, thank you. Um. Well, like today was unav was was out of the ordinary. Today I had a visitor, but he comes once a month or so. A monk from Toronto. We sat around and we ate lunch together. Well, he ate fruit, I ate food. He eats in the evening, I think. So, and he had a big breakfast so he only had fruit. Uh, We talked for quite a while and then we went to the food bank because he was delivering food to the kids' food bank nearby. But you know, regular things that I do, I teach early in the morning, I teach at 7, so before that people bring food, Um, and I teach in the evening, and I teach at night, and I answer emails, some, not most, I'm organizing a peace club and a Buddhism club at the university, I'll be going to school soon, so that'll change my schedule, Uh, but other than that, I do meditation, I take a shower, I eat, I do laundry once in a while, sometimes I shave, that's what I do. Interesting experiences, I don't know, every experience is to some extent interesting,
0: When sleeping, how do we balance focusing on the moment of waking up and noting the rising and falling of the abdomen?
1: Yeah, I don't think you need to be obsessively repeating it in your mind. You just, before you, when you do lie down, you make a determination that you're going to wake up at a certain time. I'm not convinced that you should actually lie there thinking about when you're waking up because that's thinking about the future, right? not really useful I would say do that and then meditate to sleep that's of course mu- seems yeah, it's much much more doable oops Oop, I deleted the wrong one did you see that one that I just deleted Or
0: I don't think so
1: okay I'm going to go back to it we got an answered tab okay um, oh no Hey, they're not in order. The answered ones are not in order. Yeah, they seem to... um, They're going according to how many... We should see if we can get the answered ones to go in order of when they were asked.
0: Are they going in order of upvotes like they do on the question panel?
1: I don't even know if if there was one that I missed. I think I deleted the wrong one.
0: Okay, well... Hopefully the person's still there, and if your question disappeared, maybe you can resubmit it. Should we contemplate on the four protections daily? That is, Buddha himself, appreciating the nine chief qualities of the Buddha, loving-kindness, the loathsome aspects of the body, and death. Sure, yeah.
1: I mean, that's a lot of what evening and morning chanting is about it becomes very ritualistic so you might want to make it a little more meaningful but yeah, those are all good things
0: How do you deal with sleepiness during the midday?
1: You note it or do walking meditation but try and note it, you know when you feel sleepy, try and focus on the sleepiness and say tired tired You find that you can overcome it, sometimes.
0: Can one abandon habits by making a determination of not giving in to the desire and observing the attachment?
1: Well, you only abandon habits when you start to see that they're useless. So determinations can be good, helpful, but um, they don't do the trick. They don't help you abandon habits. They don't cause you to abandon habits. The only thing that causes you to abandon habits is clear sight, seeing things clearly as they are, because that helps you see that those habits are useless.
0: Sounds like you had a great day day. I have a weird question to ask you. I have a lot of anxiety naturally, and I notice that I get extremely attached to meditation in an unhealthy way. I get stressed extremely easily, especially for someone young. It seems like meditation helps, but there's some sort of phenomena preventing me from being calm. Making it so I meditate all the time and going without it for a few days starts making me messed up should I consider some sort of a psychiatrist no,
1: no, just keep meditating no, Um, I mean meditation should become a part of your life meaning when you're not meditating because you say you get stressed I don't know if you're even practicing according to our tradition perhaps you're not if you're not then my first advice because you're coming to me for advice is to read my booklet on how to meditate because the way we practice here and therefore all of my answers and advice are going to be based on the teaching in that book now, if and when you do that, or if you've already done that, um, I'd recommend practice in that way. But then also applying it to your daily life. So when you're worried or stressed, you would say worried, worried, stressed, stressed, and you try to be mindful during your daily life. When you're walking anywhere, try to say to yourself walking, walking. When you eat, say chewing, chewing, swallowing. But at the very least, you know, be aware of your emotions during the time you're not meditating especially if you're doing meditation so well that it's, it's uh, a refuge for you. The other thing is perhaps not be so obsessed with being calm and you have to learn to meditate on the calm by saying to yourself, calm, calm, so that you don't get attached to it. Because once you get attached to it, then you can't deal when it's not present. You become dependent on it as you are relating. So a big part of it is to be able to note and let go of the calm.
0: Sometimes when I meditate, I start to get a really strong terror. I start to think that Nibbana is actually complete suffering and that I should stop practicing. How should I deal with this? It's quite overwhelming.
1: You say afraid, afraid. We all have irrational fears. Just learn to note them.
0: I think you're all caught up on questions, Monthe. Now you're not. What is your greatest struggle as a meditator? Yeah,
1: sorry, I'm not going to answer questions about myself. You've got one in there about my day. I'll, I'll go that far and tell you what I do during the day. but Nope. Sorry. Rule number three, no questions about me.
0: What were rules number one and two, Bhante? I don't know, I'm just guessing.
1: One of the rules is uh, no questions asking about things I don't know anything about, right? Like, what do you think of Hari of Krishnamurti or that kind of thing? I don't remember the third one. I think there was a third rule, though. Well, no non-meditative questions, right?
0: Yeah, maybe speculative questions. Hmm.
1: Do you think there are aliens on another planet? <laughs> Sorry, you're asking the wrong dude.
0: Well, when you used to have the, um, oh, what was what was the older format with the Ask a Monk? It was um, Google Moderator, hmm. and people would vote on questions, and there was this one question about how many minds are there in the universe? And I thought it was such a great question, and I I voted on it, and I waited and waited and waited until it finally got to the point where it was the top question and you were going to answer, and your answer was, I'm not answering this question. I had waited so long. (laughs) Good on me. So for the person who just asked again, are you enlightened? That Actually, monks don't talk about that. There's there's actually... rules for monks not to speak about their practice attainments and so forth so that's why your question wasn't answered the first time around
1: one last question and
0: then we're gone okay do you have any suggestions on places to stay on a meditative retreat do you offer this service
1: absolutely we have a meditation center but i would read my booklet it I'm assuming you probably haven't read my booklet on how to meditate. That's where I would start. You can find it in the menu here to this website. You'll see a book, uh, a link in the side that says guide in the side menu. You should read that guide. It's actually a book on how to meditate. It's not very long. And if you like that, then you're welcome to come and meditate with us. If you want to meditate with us, you should go to our main site, which is just sirimangalo.org and uh, check us out. We have right now four meditators staying here, which is our capacity. But you can book a time, book some dates, and come and stay with us.
0: And that's right on the same website with the How to Meditate book, different tabs up top, just um, look for the one that says, I think the schedule is visible to people. So you can check and see when there's room. And then there's a another tab that says apply to meditate.
1: Okay. Well, that's all for tonight. Thank you all for tuning in. Thanks, Robin, for your help. Have a good night, everyone.
0: Thank you, Bhante. Good night.